Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Milo. And uh, at Christmas, it seems like there's a lot of different Christmas parties where you get people together and, and you do this question where you said, tell us one thing that we don't know about you. And, you, and like, so here's my go-to. I was in a boy band. Didn't know that about me, did you? So in high school, I was in a band and we weren't like, for those of you who don't understand what the boy band is, because it's not your generation, think. So, so we were kind of a doo-wop quartet. Uh, and we, we decided that we were cooler than the boy bands that were popular in the 90s when I grew up because we did all of our stuff a cappella. And so, uh, yeah, let that settle in for a minute. It's, it's a little bit weird at, at the end of the day. But ultimately, uh, my claim to fame, I got to, to sing the national anthem and the Canadian national anthem at somewhere between five and ten different Sabres games. Uh, and so I got to be there right by the athletes and all that type of stuff. Man, it was a big deal. And then I got to watch the games, and at that point, the Sabres were actually pretty good. So it was a, uh, it was a big deal. It was pretty exciting. Um, so check out the names of our quartets. Uh, first, the, the, the one that I was in my freshman and sophomore year in high school was called Visual Harmony. And so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's who we were, okay? Because we were singing, but somehow we were visual. I don't know how that kind of came together. But we had two underclassmen and two seniors uh, in, in the quartet. And what ended up happening was uh, the two guys were graduating. And so um, one of the guys who was graduating came back to us. And he was like, man, I just want to tell you I'm so excited. I really love this quartet. I love being in this. And so I've decided I, I'm failing two of my classes so that I can come back next year. It was kind of awkward because basically we had already moved on. You know, like you're, grad you're supposed to graduate high school, you're supposed to move on. And so we had this new quartet that had formed and now we were a new boy band and now we've got this guy who failed himself out of his last year to come back and be in the band and we didn't have any room for him at that point. So it was a little bit awkward. So we then formed a new quartet which was not with him and our name was Euphony, which also an awkward word because I don't really know what that means. It's a pleasant sound to the ear. I don't know if we sounded that great or not, uh, but that's who we were. So we had this awkward, like, so his whole senior year now he's failed his classes to come back for. We had to kind of walk around the halls and not look at each other. Um, and we, we got to go and sing the national anthem again at the Sabres game a few times and he wasn't invited to come and like, what are you supposed to do with that? And there's just this awkward tension thing that goes on in between. Um, it's, it's something that's funny when you think back about high school relationships, but some of you have maybe gone through some of this more recently. Uh, Jimmy Fallon was a big fan. I'm a big fan of his, and he does something called hashtags every week. And so a few weeks ago, this goes back earlier this summer, he had a hashtag called awkward breakup. And he let people send in all of their tweets to tell you how about their awkward breakup. So here's a few of them that I picked out of his list. Uh, the first was a seventh grade boyfriend. Our moms were friends, so I asked my mom to break up with him through his mom. Uh, this one's a little bit more of an adult relationship. The day I broke up with someone, he revealed to me that he had tattooed my initials into his ankle. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend dumped me while I was paying for the pizza, and the delivery guy felt so bad that he gave me a hug. Yeah. 
I don't know what you do after that. That's weird. Uh, she emailed me. It was over. Waited. Got impatient. Called me. Said, you should check your email. And then hung up. This one's a favorite of mine because this very well could have happened to me at some point. Uh, my boyfriend and my dad and his dad sounded alike. I called him up and accidentally ended the relationship by breaking up with his dad. When I finished, he said, let me get Jason. I can't imagine being the dad listening to this whole thing and like, all right, now I got to move on. So why do so many relationships crash and burn? We're going to ask that this morning as kind of our opening question. If you're using uh, your notes inside of your uh, program this morning, you'll see we've got notes to work your way through. We've got some fill-ins there. Uh, if you'll open up your Bibles, I hope you have a copy of God's Word. And we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes today. If you don't, we have uh, Bibles there in front of you. We're near page 700, 701, somewhere in that range if you're looking for uh, the page number. And of course, you're able to use your devices and find your way around. Uh, version is a great version, a great app to be able to find where we're at. Uh, we'll be in the NIV today. But we're asking the questions, why do so many relationships crash and burn? In the world that we live in at an alarming rate, friendships fall apart, business relationships fall apart, people are going bankrupt, marriages are ending in separation and divorce. Is it even possible to have a healthy and a successful relationship in the middle of constant disappointments and in the middle of uh, frustrations and arguments that come up over the past, over finances, over jobs and differing outside interests? Isn't it just easier to not be in relationship at all? Isn't it easier to walk away? So Solomon aids our pursuit of wisdom here, and he's going to show us some things in context. He reflects on the tension between the chaos in our world, so what I'm describing right now is the chaos that we do experience in the world that we live in, and the same way he's going to con contrast that with the goodness of our Creator. And I'll tell you today, some of the stuff that he is going to lead us through, particularly if you're in one of those broken relationships right now, if that wound is still raw and it's still sore, it's going to be tough to swallow today. But I believe we've got to be honest. We've got to wrestle through some of these things. We've got to look at the world that we live in and, and look at it with, without rose-colored glasses. We need to be aware of, of the situation that we're in. And there's a real problem that's around us. And so that's your first fill-in. There's an unrelenting problem. There's an unrelenting problem, and that is loneliness. An unrelenting problem, loneliness. In a survey published by the AARP in 2010, we learned that one in three adults aged 45 or older are reported to be chronically lonely. Loneliness is a major problem in our culture today, and Solomon is writing as a lonely man himself. Uh, he is living in a huge palace. He has incomparable riches. He has all of the world at his fingertips. Uh, he has a thousand women as his wives, but yet he still finds himself empty and lonely with no friends and no family. His story is 3,000 years old, and yet it is timeless and applicable to us today. It's important for us to take note to what is going on here. So there's an unrelenting problem of loneliness. And the first fill-in for you, it is due to oppression. It is due to oppression. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Here we go. Again, I looked and I saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. 
And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. It was brought to my attention by Cliff Miller. He's one of our elders. Uh, an organization called the Free Burma Rangers. Over 60 years of civil war has left Burma uh, absolutely destroyed. Uh, during this time, it has become one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, there have been successive military dictatorships killing thousands and thousands of their own people, displaced millions in resistance areas, and effectively strangled the political process there in that nation. Uh, recent developments in the country have made it a democratic nation, although it's struggling to do that, to run elections, but it's getting better. There's more openness, there's less censorship, there's ongoing ceasefire talks, there's many unplanned but positive meetings that are going on between uh, this organization and the Burma Army as a ceasefire delegation. Yet at the same time, today, right now, there are attacks and military buildup that are continuing in that area. Uh, while the state, the Kashin state and the Burma army continues an all-out assault on its own people. On other areas, there's parts of the area that have the daily laying of landmines. There's an attack on the civilian population. There's still forced labor. And there's destruction of civilian property and troop resupplying that takes place, place when they just come into a village and take all their supplies because the troops need them. Some of you know this backstory to some extent because there are thousands, literally thousands here in Buffalo who are coming from Burma as refugees. Uh, I've gotten to know Pastor Tamang uh, Perna. Some of you have gotten to know Pastor Perna and he started a church about five years ago here in the west side uh, that has now 300, 400 people in attendance. It's one of the fastest growing churches in Buffalo and it's almost entirely uh, of a Burmese population. Uh, still, those who are here, so they are in a safe place, yes. They are in a new country, yes. But they are still, and he'll tell me that, and I've, I've learned and gotten to know some of his congregation that speak English, and they're more than happy, particularly the younger ones. They want to carry on conversations in English. Uh, they're going through it, and they are still the loneliest people, even though they are safe. They are lonely, and they are dealing with this. It has nothing to do with their own uh, doing, but they, they, this loneliness and this oppression creates a loneliness that is some of the worst on the planet. It takes many forms. In this case, it's a military or a government oppression. There are oppressive and abusive relationships that happen in the home. There are some of you here this morning that you come and you put on a happy face and you're here today, but you have an abusive relationship that you have to go back to this afternoon. And, and not all of us are going to talk about that, but it's the reality of the world that we live in. And we find out about it often after it's gotten way, way too bad. Those relationships are broken. There's racial oppression. And then reactionary terrorism that follows up with that. Uh, if you've watched the news at all this week, and I don't know all the details of what's going on, but the Dallas shootings are a terrible thing. And as that's happened, there's an oppression. There's an there's a anxiety and fear that's over us that is actually creating this, this terrorist almost society that we're beginning to live in that's worse than maybe reality but it gets hyped up and there's this broken and oppressive relationship that forms so if everywhere we look we see these oppressive relationships we see that relationships continue to crash and burn and I'm not talking just about romantic relationships you understand that we're talking about relationships between an employer and an employee a, a state and its uh, people and its citizens what can we possibly do well one we can we can comfort the oppressed. 
Sometimes people don't need answers. They just need a friend. They just need someone there to listen, just to be there. There are miseries in this life and in this world that we can't explain. That's hard to come to grips with, but there are things that we can't explain. And there are times that you just need to sit with a person during their season of grieving and just be there. April talked about it this morning when she came to the church. She wasn't sure what she was looking for, but she just showed up. She just decided to be there. This is called a ministry of presence. It's hard when a person is going through a trial, but when they look back and they say, you know what, you were there for me. You were there for me when I needed you. So that's one way we can follow up is to comfort people. Secondly, we can grab with both hands the opportunities that God has given us. Uh, it, is, it is possible for us to serve. It is possible for us to get involved. It is possible for us to fight against injustice. It is possible for us to use the leverage that we have and the place that we have. Why? Because God honestly drives and encourages us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, some of you need to personally engage. Some of you need to get involved. Some of you need to bloody your knuckles when you see injustice happening. But we need to be reminded that after the final judgment, every tear has been wiped from every eye, every spark of evil has been extinguished, and the kingdom of God will rule forever. There will be nothing but peace and love and joy. But some of you know all together, all too well, but that's not the world we live in today. Today there remain many who are oppressed, many who are lonely. It is an unrelenting problem of loneliness. So first we see it due to oppression. Secondly, we see it due to competition, beginning in verse 4. Due to competition, beginning in verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one, one's personal envy of another. This too is meaningless in a chasing after the wind. As Solomon is doing his people watching, are some of you people watchers, you like to sit in a, in a cafe, a restaurant that, that has the windows open so you can see it. My personal favorite is to eat ice cream in the summer and sit at a four-way stoplight and just watch people come back. And I just like that. I don't know something about the way I was brought up, just eating ice cream and watching the cars come and go. I could do that all day. Maybe it's because of the ice cream. I'm not sure. Much of, much of the achievement that people see is a result to be superior over others. As he's watching and he's looking at the world around him, as he's, he's eating his ice cream cone and watching traffic go by, he's saying, really what's going on here is I see people are constantly going back and forth and trying to one-up each other. We live in a constant state of competition. We have, uh, research indicates that 9 out of 10 office workers suffer from professional envy. They're basically always looking for that next leg up, for that next step. They're looking for a more glamorous or a better paid job. They're looking for something that's better, maybe not a better paid job, but maybe a, a job that treats their employees better, or maybe a job that has better benefits or maybe better perks. And you see uh, offices like Google and Yahoo are now not necessarily paying their employees better, but they are creating an, an environment that is just fun and happy to work in. And so that becomes an envy that people want. They want a place where they can go and have fun when they work. The quest is to get ahead. It's true in other areas of our lives as well. Uh, we want to be more successful than our neighbors and our friends. We want our grass to look better than our neighbors and our friends. Think about the clothes that you're wearing right now. 
most likely it was not an issue of whether or not you actually needed a different shirt, but whether or not it was a shirt that looked better than someone else or you wanted to compare it to someone else. You didn't purchase that new car or that, that vehicle that you adjusted yourself into. You didn't do that necessarily because you absolutely could not live one more moment in the previous vehicle, but because you purchased it, you had seen, wanted to be seen and, and see and be seen in that vehicle. Not all of you, but some of you are definitely right in the middle of this. Some of us realize that the evils of envy and rivalry determine that we're going to be different. We don't want people uh, that will be able to step on us or let them climb on us to the top. And so what do we do? We back out of the competition altogether. And you step away and remove yourself. And this is dangerous as an extreme as well. If you pull yourself away from, uh, from everything, what happens? Well, let's look. Verse 5 says what happens. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better a handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. It says here that foolish people are prone to be lazy. Foolish people refuse to learn, repeat the same bad decisions over and over, and then when you try to help them, they argue with you because you are trying to get into their space. They would much rather uh, just back away and let the world compete with each other, but really what's going on behind it? You see what's really going on there? It's a term called competitive laziness. Competitive laziness. I can be more lazy than you can. Just watch me. They can be even more irresponsible. Yet they're clever about it. They're smart about it. They know how to push their responsibilities again and again and again onto responsible people who are trying to get ahead. Responsible people who are paying their bills. And so what happens is this person figures out ways to get the other to pay their bills, to bail them out, to clean up their life's mess, to endure all the pain that their foolishness creates so that they never have to feel it. But at the end of the day, where does it take them? What's the result? A return back to the same unrelenting problem of loneliness. First, due to oppression. Second, due to competition. Third, due to isolation. Due to isolation, beginning in verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was, a small, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is a miserable, meaningless business. A recent news story illustrates this point very well. There's a game called Minecraft. Minecraft. Minecraft is like a virtual Lego game. And some of the kids who are in here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. Most adults, we have no idea why it matters or who cares, but it is an obsession beyond belief. I don't understand. There's these little blocks and they move around and for some reason we get excited about it. And all the 3D and HD graphics that we have available to us, there's this game that just has these little blocks moving around and the kids are crazy about it. But the, the guy who developed this it's, there's this world where uh, they can create their own world and experiences. Basically, they call it a virtual play box or sandbox because you can just create anything that you want. There's really no limits to it. So Yahoo News reports that the Minecraft founder, Marcus Pearson, sold his creation to Microsoft for $2.5 billion for a video game. He immediately retired. He bought a $70 million home and began throwing constant parties. After doing that for a year, he sent out 
tweets that sound very much like Ecclesiastes. I would call these Ecclesiastes-esque tweets. This is from Marcus Pearson. He said this, The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and the human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. When we sold the company, the biggest effort went in, into making sure the employees got taken care of. Now they all hate me. I found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle, and she decided to be with a normal person instead. So here's an incredibly successful man. He's made it all, and, and this is today, right? This is happening right now around us. He's ex successful, but he really wants the things that money can't buy. He really wants the things that he can't go and purchase uh, with a credit card. The things that he, even though he has all the money in the world, he cannot get. What is it? It's real family and friends. A wife, a normal life is what he's calling to him. It sounds like an escape from the prison that he lives in. This prison of loneliness. He's coming to the same conclusion. His finding is the same as Solomon's. He's an incredibly successful man. And by every human measure, he has all the things that you could ask for. But wise people would pay attention if you pay attention to what he's saying, you'll notice that Solomon is saying exactly the same thing. He's lived the same story. Loneliness is the problem. It strikes every single one of us. It strikes us regardless of where our status is in the world. And the question has to be asked, what makes lasting relationships work? The need to have someone enjoy life with prompts. Solomon prompts us to have uh, friendships and community. We need to be able to enjoy life with someone. When we live it alone, it's a pretty dark and scary place. So Solomon is there. He's at that point. He's lonely. He's sitting on his pile of money, basically, as that lead-in video is showing us. He's sitting there and just mulling it all over. And at the end of the day, he gives us four benefits of having invested our energy into real relationships, real friends, and real family. In fact, he's coming up for a solution to our relationship problem. And so that's our next fill-in, an unrivaled solution. Friendships, core friendships. What do you want from your church? If you're like most people, you want dynamic preaching, you want a great children's ministry, you want the church to be focused on missions, you want a good experience when you come in, you want it to be cool in the summer, you want it to be warm in the winter. Uh, but at the end of the day, because we all want the whole kit and caboodle, right? And, and there's some of you that have some pet preferences. Some things that you want to focus on more than others. And you're not all here because we all have the same pet preferences, but there's a lot of things that you can focus on. For me, my pet preference, if you want to call it that, I, I want to be a part of a church that is focused on children's ministry, youth ministry, thinking about the next generation. Because a church that's thinking about the next generation will be here in the next generation. But that's really a preference. You understand that? Because as I've learned, as people look and they focus on all these different ministries, they, they look at all the different ways that they could get involved and all the different things that are going, these programs are going on in the church, really there's only one priority that we can all agree on, and that is friendship. That's what April talked about during our discussion this morning. At Renewal Church, which is our church plan, I was involved with there very much in the early days, getting, getting things off the ground. And when you'd invite people to church and you'd have a conversation with them, and they never, they never said, man, the worship there is amazing. They just didn't say that. 
They didn't say, man, the kids programming, that's why we're here. We love the kids program. We love what you do for our kids. Man, the preaching is out of this world. I'll tell you, they definitely did not say that. Do you know why? Because we didn't have those things. When you're meeting in an H&R block, you don't have any of that. Why are they there? Why are they getting involved? Why are they still there now? Why does that church exist? What, what holds it all together? The glue that holds it together is the relationships. We don't have any of that. When everything is said and done, deep down all of us value friendship. We value community. We can't deny it. We can't suppress it. We can't shake it off. God wired each and every one of us a need for relationships, a need for community, a need for friendships. And ultimately, friendships are what make the church go forward. This week we had a meeting, we call it Coffee with a Pastor. It happens once a month. And I asked the question there. I said, tell me about your significant friendships. What do they look like? When did they start? How did you find this person? Some of these people have been around for a little while. Some of these relationships go back. Some relationships go way back. But what do they have in common? Those type of relationships are all built about common experiences. They actually have spent time together with these people. Some have spent time with 10 years, 20 years, 50 years with a person. When you have shared relationships, shared experiences, that's where friendships are formed. And friendships make a church go forward. Why? Let's talk about it. Core relationships, core friendships built for sharing and serving. Core friendships are built for sharing and serving. Continuing on in verse 9 of chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help up the other. But pity anyone who falls who has no one to help them up. Core friendships are built for sharing. What good are golf clubs if you don't have anyone to go golfing with? You don't have anyone to swing them with? What good is a boat if it rots at the dock because you don't have anyone to go out there with? What good is a big house if you don't have any kids in it or don't have any family in it or don't have anyone that you would invite over? The blessing comes not from getting, but from sharing and giving. This is why the reason that God is teaching us to be joyful and teaching us because He Himself is so generous. Look what He has given to you and to me. Core friendships are built for sharing and for serving. Both of those things. Life has wins, losses, ups and downs, good times, bad times. We all stumble and we fall and we need someone to help us be picked up. Emotionally, if you are only in a relationship where you are sharing everything, at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to have to serve that person. At some point, they're going to walk through something where you're going to have to suffer a little bit with them. You're going to have to try to help. You're going to try to have to serve financially, spiritually, physically. If you think even in the Garden of Eden, when everything was absolutely perfect, God told two perfect people that it was not good for them to be alone. We need people and people need us. In a world we live in now with a service economy where it's much easier to just put out some money and ask someone to come and do a job or do some work or clean up around the house or we can get so disconnected from what it actually means to live in community. What happens when we can't afford to ask someone to come by or we find ourselves down and unable to get back up? How do we deal with those things? Are you willing to serve? Friendships make the church go forward. Why? Because friendships, core friendships, are built 
for sharing and for serving. Secondly, core friendships are built for comforting and for protecting. Comforting and protecting. Verse 11, also if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how will one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Core friendships are for comforting. The world we live in is lonely with people living more years of their single life alone, away from family. Technology makes things even worse as it can never replace a face-to-face, human-to-human experience. It's something I'm very passionate about, trying to find ways to connect people together one-on-one, face-to-face connections. It's ironic, I think, that it's a good tool, but FaceTime is, it, it, it's not actually FaceTime. We get that, right? And it's a distraction. It pulls us away from what real relationships are. You can't have a godly 50-year marriage through a screen. You just can't. You can have a relationship through Skype. Yes, I get that. But you are not going to be able to dig in to what life really is. You're not going to parent through texting. You have to be in a relationship with this person. God understands this, and that's why He broke into history. He connected to us personally when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to walk the earth, to walk with us, to be in relationship with us, to eat at the same places that we eat at, to share an experience with each and every one of us. We get this. We understand this. We don't always practice this. But we get it. Like a a hospital room, for instance. People need to be comforted. What's always, always, always in a hospital room? There's a bed and there's a chair or two that are there so that someone can be there next to them. If you've ever been in a hospital bed, it's a very defeating purpose to see that empty chair day after day after day after day as well. But that's what it's for. Core friendships are for comforting Core friendships are for protecting. This world's a dangerous place. Evil people want to harm us. There are foolish people who want to use us and abuse us. This includes physical needs. This includes sexual needs. It's financial. It's vocational. There are emotional dangers of connecting with the wrong people. You need to have a close friend, a core friend, who is protecting you from that. Solomon uses here this analogy of a fight or an assault where two people back to back can fight off the enemy because they've got each other's back. That's what it means when you say, I've got your back. Or a soldier will say, I've got your six, meaning that they've got your back. The big idea is life is safer with two people sticking together. And then a cord of three strands, it goes on even further. They said, hey, if you've got better than two, you're doing even better. You'll strengthen it even more. We all face trials and tests in our life. If you have no one to walk through these things with, these dark times, life will look impossible. This is why the involvement in the local church is so important. As we talked in coffee with the pastor the other day, there was someone brought up, uh, and and I believe that it was Dottie that brought it up, I'm not certain, but just said that, uh, that the process of being involved in the local church is something you take for granted. Those of you who have grown up in the church and been involved in the church for year after year, that there's a community that is here that's available to you that is not available to someone who is not connected to the body. When you go through those dark times, are you protected? When your neighbor is going through dark times, your neighbor is going through difficult times, are you being there as their protector as well? Friendships make the church go forward. Why? Because they are built for sharing and serving. They are built for comforting and protecting. They are built, thirdly, for support and accountability. They are built for support and accountability. 
Solomon changes gears here a little bit. He gives a quick four-verse parable. You've heard of Jesus telling parables. It's basically what Solomon is doing here. He reminds us that popularity is fleeting, and therefore we had better come to some core friendships. We need support and accountability before we will all come undone again. Check this out. Verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born into poverty with his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There's no end to all the people who were before him, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor either. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What's in view here of this parable is a succession of kings, none of them who, who are able to satisfy the populace that's in front of them. First, he describes this old king, one who refuses uh, to take advice. He's lost his marbles, and everybody knows it. But he refuses to take counsel. He refuses to allow people to speak in his life. Secondly, you have a young man who has who's come into power from uh, a different society. He's maybe the bottom of society. And there's different ways that he could come to the top, it's showing here. And yet not everyone will accept or appreciate him. And basically, he will be in the same spot that the other king is in. Why? Because they lack the support. They lack the accountability. What do they both have? Verse 16 says that they had no end to the number of people that were before them. There was no end. There was tons and tons of people around. And the number of relationships you accumulate over time will not matter if it's the core friendships and the core relationships in your family that will sustain. And in this example, where is the support for the aging king from his core friends? Where is the support there that gives him the sense of purpose, that allows him to know that he still has value, he still has something to offer if they are willing to work together? to make and adapt this kingdom for the necessary change that must need to, to take place. In this parable, where's the accountability for the young king that, that rose up into power so quickly? Where's he apparently that he needed core friends and a family that grounds him, that reminds him that he's just another guy trying to carve his place in the world? Where's the accountability for that? This four-verse parable has a very abrupt ending but time has proven again and again that those young and old who sustain core friendships and have core relationships where people are willing to speak into your life experience support and accountability. Some of you are familiar. It's something that's sort of happening within the body, but it's, it's, it's taken time and it's still growing. Something called life transformation groups. These are groups that exist with men with men, women with women, usually three men that get together for morning for coffee. That's the way it looks like for me. Some of the ladies are getting together with three or four or five. Getting together and being able to, as iron sharpens iron, be able to use God's Word as a place of beginning, to be able to start there and say, okay, if we read God's Word together, what is He going to teach us? What is He going to show us? Now, let's look at what's going on in our lives, the relationships that I have with my wife, with my kids, with the people that I work with every day. What do those relationships work? What, what do those relationships look like? And then in that same process, am I living out my faith? Do I have relationships with those who are far from God? Am I able to live that out by proclaiming the gospel? And the only way that you're going to see traction happen in those things is if you've got someone supporting you and keeping you accountable in those ways. And that's exactly what those life transformation groups are for. In fact, we're working right now to kind of re-energize some of those groups that are going. And some of you have some going that I don't know about, and that's fantastic. We're trying to re-energize that. Why? Because we believe that this matters. It has value. And over here on my left, on your right, Pat is here. He's, he's with us for six weeks. 
And he's doing that. He's part of us trying to kind of re-energize that and get some of those groups going. And so, men, if he contacts you, be willing to step in. Lean into this. Why? Because support and accountability is something that matters deeply. For me, myself, there are so many pastors. I can open up the newspaper any day of the week and find another pastor who has fallen from his ministry because he didn't have anyone keeping him accountable. And so that's why I look for it in every way that I can. And if you're a leader in this church, you ought to as well. Friendships make the church go forward. Lastly, why? Because they are built for love and for sacrifice. And see this really demonstrated. We do need to change gears here. We need to go to the New Testament. We need to look at John chapter 15. Turn over to John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This chapter deals with Jesus' teaching about I am the vine and you are the branches. But here he takes it another step. Verse 12, he says, My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down a life for one's friends. Core friendships are built for love. Jesus doesn't issue a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is not something for you to consider. He commands his disciples to love each other because Christian love isn't a feeling. We're distracted by that when we, when we watch TV or we, we listen to our favorite song and someone falling into love or stumbling into love with one another. When we see love in Scripture, it looks entirely different. Notice Jesus doesn't say, this is my commandment that you like one another. This is a choice that's made. A choice that is made to love one another. There's some Christians that you like and there's some Christians that you don't like to be around. There's personality conflicts and we get that. You don't like their preferences or their priorities. You don't have to have chemistry. You have to love. Jesus commands you and I to love. You can still love them even though you don't like them because it's a choice to seek their highest good. This is an issue that Jesus has commanded you and I to do. It's a decision of the will. He has called us to love one another. He's called us to sacrifice for one another. Here in John, it's the next chapter we find Jesus washing his disciples' feet. They're grimy, grungy, nasty feet. I don't know what your feet look like right now. It's summer. I've got this weird sandal tan going on. I can't imagine walking around out in the sun out and, and doing that every day all the time and now my leader is going to drop down and wash my feet. And in that setting, really what should have been happening, they should have been serving him. That night this was so powerful. They should have been putting Jesus first. This was going to be the last time they're going to spend this time with Jesus. And yet he was washing their feet. Why? Because he served them in this memorable fashion, but he'd done that throughout his entire ministry. His entire life consisted of putting others first. He refers to his own death here, where we're at in this chapter, the ultimate expression of his love for the disciples. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. I'll share a story with you, and I've got somewhat of a personal connection to it. Dr. Robinson McQuilkin was for many years the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. In about 1980, Dr. McQuilkin began to see signs of memory loss in his wife, Muriel. For the next decade, he watched his wife, watched her health deteriorate, 
She was one who would do conference speaking. She would be on radio shows. She even began to be on television. But all of a sudden, they had to stop, start canceling these shows. Uh, it, it just wasn't safe for her to be in those situations. He told a story about being in Tokyo and taking a shower and coming out of the, the shower and his wife wasn't in the room and couldn't be found anywhere. They weren't sure what to do or where to go in a city where she could be absolutely anywhere. Her deterioration continued to advance rapidly. The situation posed a crisis naturally for Dr. McQuilkin. As a president of a thriving college and graduate school, how could he meet the needs of his wife and his job? How could he do it all? Many well-meaning Christians and friends suggested that they put her into an Alzheimer's unit, but he couldn't bear the thought of it. As Muriel's condition worsened, he made the decision as a matter of integrity, is how he described it. He resigned from Columbia as the president to care for his wife full-time. Some people thought that he was choosing at task a, remote, a remarkable social and professional cost. What he was doing could cost him everything. He was leading this university, leading this seminary, doing great things. He was equipping saints to be able to go out all around the world to do the mission of God. And now, because of this, where were they going to go? Who was going to do it? They felt he was throwing away his career, the one that God had provided. But Dr. McQuilkin found tremendous joy in serving his wife. And he unselfishly took care of her because she had done the same for him for 42 years. She had demonstrated love for him. Aaron and I heard Dr. McCulloch speak. It was about 2003, early 2004. It was about six months after his wife had passed away. And to hear him tell her story, I'll tell you his time was absolutely not wasted. He would, he would share how in the mornings he would be on the treadmill and he, his wife could no longer even speak. But he would just be on the treadmill and tell her about the day, tell her what was going on and share his, his life with her. He had, had very little time for writing at that point, but he would work on a book orally in front of her so that she could be a participant in what was going on. And he virtually stopped his life for almost 20 years to take care of his wife, his ailing wife. This last June, 2016, Dr. McQuilkin just died. But in the last 10 years, he's been able to share his story and have more impact with what happened with how he took care of his wife, perhaps, than any of what he had been doing previous to that. Would you choose to take care of your spouse in the case of a long-term sickness? Would you be willing to sacrifice your career and your interest? Would you be willing to turn down a promotion or quit even your current job so that you could spend more time with your children or with your grandchildren? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to selflessly step out of ministry limelight and let someone else step in and fill in like he did? Whether it's at a, at a vocational ministry position or something more insignificant maybe. But you're going to step aside and let someone else learn that position and learn and grow in that. This church is 200 years old. At some point, there has been a handoff where the new generation has come in and learned the ropes. That takes time. That takes a process. But in doing that, that's what love and sacrifice looks like. When you carry out these type of selfish and sacrificial acts of love, God's program moves forward. Why? Because friendships make the church go forward. What makes lasting relationships work. It's only when the love of God is within our hearts and we are truly able to love those around us 
Or put it another way, it's by knowing Jesus and only when He lives in your heart that yours can do, truly be a core friendship, a core relationship that endures. That's it. That's the only way that this thing is going to last. You see, God is love. In Christ, God shows us the true nature of love. In Christ, God made a deliberate decision to love you and to love me by sending His Son to die on the cross for you and for me. And in Christ, God's love lasts forever. Relationships work. Lasting relationships work only if Jesus Christ is at the center. A church works and a church lasts only if Jesus Christ is at the center. And in what he has done, he has written the most incredible love story ever. What Dr. McQuilkin did with his wife was beautiful, but it's a representation of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Core friendships are built for sharing and serving. They are built for comforting and protecting, built for support and accountability, built for love and sacrifice. And if you need to take a step back and evaluate that core friendship that you are in, is this here? These four points that Solomon is making and as we're looking at this morning, are they there? Is that friendship going to last? Is it going to drive home? Is it going to be of value five years from now, ten years from now? Jesus Christ has shown us the true nature of love. I pray that this morning you have seen it as well. It is the most incredible love story ever told, ever written. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for who you are. We live in a world of broken relationships. We live in a room. This room has broken relationships all over it, Lord, whether it's professionally, whether it's privately, whether it's within this room. Teach us, Lord. Teach us what it looks like to have relationships that are healthy. Teach us what it looks like to have uh, your Holy Spirit move and work inside of us to, to remedy this. Lord, teach us how to build relationships that last. Build relationships that matter. Build relationships that are centered on you and you alone. We love you, Lord. And we thank you so much for your word that it challenges us it pushes us. It drives us forward. Lord, give us the boldness to take the steps we need to take today. In Jesus' name, amen.